Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazz World Report. Introducing our guest today can take a very long time because he just has too many achievements to mention. Let me give a few anyway. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author with more than 25 books to his name. He's got a new book out called Destiny, which is a must read. He's also been voted America's best preacher by Time magazine. From preaching at the pulpit to positioning you with the power to get in touch with your instincts in such a way that you commit your purpose to achieving your destiny, this man seems to be a one-stop shop for everything you need to get the most out of life. And then, of course, his program, The Potter's Touch, is watched by more than 5 million viewers every week. And if that wasn't enough, he's holding a festival in the city of Dallas called Megafest that's attracting tens of thousands of people from all over the world. And to add to that, he's now moving into the talk show arena on TV in his own words. It's all good in the neighborhood. In all of this, you hear the bishop speak, you listen to him, you watch him, you follow him. But just as you're getting used to doing that, he turns things around because he's been watching you. He's been listening to you. And I say that because he's conducted a survey on issues that matter the most to you. He calls this recent project Conversations with America. And that's what we're going to be discussing today. Welcome to the show, Bishop. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. How's the book Destiny doing? It's going incredibly well. It's it's moving and it's going fast and it's got me going fast. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. You've been on a tour. Any interesting feedback so far? It's been very positive. They're all on Twitter and uh, Instagram saying how much they're enjoying the read. Uh, some people were reading it in line, waiting for me to sign it and enjoying it. And so it's been very, very positive. And I'm, I'm grateful that I can uh, impart wisdom and direction in the lives of people who are really trying to walk in their purpose and into their destiny. I believe you get some gifts as well when they come up to you. <laughs> yeah, some of everything. They bring some of everything from art to scripts to food to just some of everything. But it's a wonderful, wonderful social uh, atmosphere at a book signing that you wouldn't expect. Wow. And I just realized, you know, when I was preparing for your show that this is such a serious topic we're going to be talking about today. You're going to be spared from crazy vip. I'm not going to be able to bust your chops on this show. Damn. <laughs> that's not, that's so unlike you. <laughs> so, Conversations with America, what's, what's all this about? Well, largely it centers on various aspects like education and, and health, and uh, now we're focusing on criminal justice and trying to better understand how people perceive and ingest information as it relates to our criminal justice system. It's mm. certainly been in the news of late, and just digging down beyond what's happening on the sidewalks to the deeper conversation of what's happening in the courtroom and, um, and in the jail cells, and just trying to make America aware that there is a disparity there, and that the disparity, I think, has something to do with what we're seeing in underserved communities. Well, you chose to conduct feedback on seven topics, namely education, race and politics, family values, health care, economic reform, the criminal justice reform, and family entertainment. Um, right off the bat, why is the church getting involved with this? Aren't these issues for a statesman to address? Yeah, well, I think in our community, the church is considered the voice of the community uh, because African-Americans for hundreds of years had no representation mm. uh, in government. Uh, it, it became a tradition. The civil rights movement started from the pews of the church, from Fred 
Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King, most of our great heroes were pulpiteers. And so there's quite a different expectation in our community from uh, what they expect the church to address as opposed to other communities. And the onus becomes on our leadership at times to speak out on certain issues that uh, our counterparts would not have to speak out on uh, should they face a similar situation. Understanding that has a lot to do with why we would take on those types of subjects. And for you, what's your own motive in this? Well, really, I set out to just understand what the problems were. At first, in my own city, uh, we have an underserved area in South Dallas that uh, the crime rates are high, the jobs are low, the drug use is up, the, the altercations are extremely high. And as I begin to work to sit down with other leaders in our community, not just black leaders, but business leaders and political leaders to see how we could move our city forward, I ran into problems that were very, very similar to uh, problems that we're seeing in Ferguson and in some of the inner cities in Baltimore and other areas are reflecting the same bleak forecast. And so I started to try to delve into why those things exist. And the criminal justice system really leaped up to the forefront. And a lot of people don't get it, but one of those reasons that it stands so high is if you have been incarcerated at any time in your life and you are released and uh, you, you come back out into the general populace, uh, you have no job because every application asks have you ever been uh, indicted for a felony, mm-hmm. and you generally can't get a place to stay because rental agreements are the same way. So if I can't get a place to stay and I can't get a job, how can I stand up on my feet? And so these subcultures of uh, infectious behavior begin to protrude in underserved communities, largely out of desperation. In many ways, it came out of one prison just to enter into another one. You know, it's easier to find out what's wrong, but it's a little more difficult to actually then make it right. How do you plan to play a role in in putting this right? Well, there is bipartisan support uh, on reform for the criminal justice system, and Mm. and that gives me some level of optimism that maybe in the conversations that protrude uh, as we process toward the electoral uh, process of our next president, that this will come up. But this is not just a federal problem. It's a municipal problem. It's a a problem with how we elect district attorneys. Uh, It's a problem with how uh, criminal justice is is almost a commodity for retail. If you don't have any money, you can't buy the kinds of representation that causes our counterparts to be able to uh, rise above circumstances like this. because they can get representation and, and have access to capital and relationships uh, to rescue their children when they get in trouble. And underserved communities of all colors uh, face a, a real blockage when they are left to court-appointed attorneys uh, who have uh, overloaded with cases and underpaid and uh, overworked, and uh, it seems easier and cheaper and faster to incarcerate. And so we've got a, a, a real crisis going on. I've actually noticed, and maybe you have, very few of the presidential candidates are talking about what you have researched on. Well, you know, I had a very interesting conversation with Senator Rand Paul mm-hmm. and was uh, pleasantly surprised that it is uh, an area that he's been working on for a number of years. And there's been several Democratic uh, leaders that have reached out to me as well with the same passion 
and tenacity to get this done. It has not made its way into the press to the to the degree that it needs to. It seems uh, it seems that the press is preoccupied with the the riots and the the murders and the killings of police officers, and that's certainly a problem that the press really helped to bring to the forefront of America so that America could see that these kinds of things were going on. But I think beneath the backdrop of those stories are deeper and more complex issues that are prohibiting uh, the overall communities from rising up. When I looked at what happened in Ferguson, I knew it was about more than Mike Brown. You don't get that many people that angry marching in the streets and flipping over cars over one individual incident. Mm. It is a combined impact of of a bunch of people who are trapped without uh, edu- proper education, uh, without economic empowerment, access to capital to start small businesses. And the other thing that was on the list that was prohibitive is when you have a disproportionate amount of of black and brown men incarcerated, you have a problem. So the stats say that more black men are incarcerated than were enslaved in 1850. And when you look at that and you understand uh, it's not just about what you see in the press or what you read, but what you're seeing in the courtroom, African-Americans make up just 13 percent of the United States population. And and 14% of monthly drug users, but account for 37% of the United States drug-related arrests, 37 out of 13% of the population. And deeper research brings you to understand that when, as of going back as far as 1970, drug arrests have skyrocketed from 320,000 to more than 1.6 million. We're making a big business out of incarceration. That's bad, but what's even more bleak is African Americans are arrested at rates two to eleven times higher than whites, even when they commit the same crime. So justice is not quite as blind as we'd like for it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people point all of that toward racism. I think it's a combination of racism and uh, uh, economics, uh, and not having the resources mm-hmm. to be able to uh, be effective when we have resources and we have relationships, uh, we respond much similarly to other people do in in working with our children to get them what they need, whether it's rehabilitation for drugs or whether it's uh, getting them fair representation for courts. But without those resources, opportunities, health care plans and what have you, you've got a problem without a cure. But what's causing the polarization? I mean, are these incidents of the shootings isolated in a way, or are they a reflection of the system? Is, is the system racist? Well, the, the system, there, there's certainly a racial component hmm. uh, to it. We, the police officers, many of which are great officers and doing a really good job, uh, many, I think the average, uh, one article I read said about 15% uh, have acted in a very racist way, uh, about 15% are extremely the other way, and 70% are in the middle. And how they respond at any given time is reflected of who they're with. There is a tendency to be very loyal to each other because they are in a in a war zone many times, and they're fighting against all types of crime and activity, but they have a loyalty that does not allow them to report each other when they've behaved in a way that's inappropriate. They don't get access to a lot of training. If you were in a corporate America or even McDonald's uh, focuses on diversity training, a lot of these officers have very poor diversity training. Consequently, they misread the assailant Mm -hmm. and and feel threatened in a way that they would not feel threatened if they were properly trained 
to understand the nuances of different people's culture and how they react under pressure. Well, you know, uh, we look at the system, but taking some words out of your own book, Destiny, and you said nothing outside of you can make you who you are. It's something inside of you that makes one who they are. Um, if I was to apply this to the African-American community, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a new immigrant. So for me, I see two stereotypes of the African-American community, which are poles apart. One is the hardworking, family-loving, faith-following, right? Um, and then there's the other, which is really, you know, represented by or portrayed by the hip-hop culture. And that seems to sort of gain a large degree of influence internationally. Well, you have to you have to kind of look at it this way. Mm. Uh, the, the planes that land safely don't get coverage. It's only one, the ones that crash. Right. So uh, if the only way you really come to know African-American people is by the 6 o'clock news or 24-hour news cycles, then your best and brightest are not the images that are reflected on screen to people who don't really interact or live in communities where they actually uh, cross-pollinate with other cultures. And often what we learn mm. about each other is based on who makes it to the television screen. Consequently, uh, there are a lot of preconceived ideologies that cause people uh, to think that the way that they do. And that's okay. People are going to be people. They're going to be diverse in their opinion. But when those people are in pe positions of power, authority, making decisions about jobs or housing or when to shoot or not to shoot, it does make a little difference when the person approaching you looks like your nephew than it does somebody who looks like somebody you've been watching on TV commit a crime. I get that. I get that. But, you know, the popular culture is always going to be popular for a reason. And, and within the culture, I find sometimes the glory of guns, the glory of gangs, um, you know, using racist words, uh, typifying, well, stereotyping well, women as hoes and, and things like that. Um, now, now I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to be remiss. Mm. We certainly have our own problems within right. the community. The, the rate of black-on-black -black crime is, is, is astronomical. Uh, far higher than uh, the incidents that we see of behavior on the sidewalk. Right. And that is a, a problem that we're well aware of in spite of the fact that people think that it is not being addressed and never talked about. It's talked about all the time. One pastor two years ago in Chicago got up on the roof in the winter and stayed up on the roof until crime sites were turned up, torn down across the street from his church made national news. There's a, there's a great battle to fight that off. But here is the reality. If you can't get adequate jobs, if you don't have access to proper education, if you can't get adequate housing and you're pressed into these housing uh, institutions that end up uh, becoming uh, urban cesspools for crime and violence, and you're having to raise children over drug needles and gunfire, it's hard to produce university students out of that kind of atmosphere with single parents. Mm -hmm. And you can't have happy families if daddy's in jail or he got out of jail and can't get a job. What man feels productive in a family that he cannot feed? Okay, you mentioned education. Majority say we're on the wrong track. I think we're 25th on the global scale. Absolutely. Which is, which is a disgrace. Nationally, because this is not a race issue or anything like that. No, it's just no. an American issue. 
Absolutely. All of it is an American issue. But until we stop seeing each other in colors and start seeing each other in crisis, we're going to have a huge problem in this country. The fact that the problem is coming from a woman or a man or a gay person or a straight person or a black person or a white person or the unique ways you choose to describe them is still an American problem. It affects all of us. The truth of the matter is we're spending billions of dollars to incarcerate. It is far cheaper to rehabilitate than it is to incarcerate. We've got prisons on the stock exchange now. People are making money through mm. incarceration. Uh, we're building prisons based on the test grade scores of third graders. Uh, that's a crisis to give up on somebody that soon at nine years old, you're deciding where I'm going to be at 19 and 20. So as a result, um, I mean, do we need our education to be more skill set based rather than fact based? I think it needs to be both and it needs to be equally, equally dispersed when some areas are receiving government, uh, some public schools are receiving funding based on zip codes and tax returns. You're not going to get a lot of tax returns from underserved communities because mm-hmm. there's low home ownership and low uh, price per capita as it relates to income. Mm. That's a factor in it. Then it's hard to get a good education in an environment where you're, you're living in a life-threatening situation. It's a very complex issue. And so one of the problems that stops us from attacking the problem effectively is that when we start talking about it in terms of black, white, and brown, there's a feeling of defending yourself if you're not black or brown, and there's a a feeling of protecting yourself if you are black and brown, and race gets in the way, and guilt gets in the way, and and feeling personally responsible when we're not talking about persons, we're talking about policies, and we're talking about systems that are dysfunctional on, on every level. I also don't. I also think nationally, we're not giving teachers enough respect that they deserve. Um, The attitude of learning also needs to change as well. I mean, you know, someone who aspires to become a teacher, I'm not sure if they're aspiring anymore, or being inspired to be one, because I'm not sure if the nation gives the teachers uh, the respect they deserve. Well, you're talking to the son of a school teacher, and and I know firsthand what that's like. And back in that era, people really were passionate about education, mm. but with poor a salary allotments, poor benefits, uh, it becomes very difficult to attract your best and brightest who may really want to teach but don't have the wherewithal to do it. And and again, this is not just a black problem. This is an American problem. We are 25th uh, compared to other countries. We are number 25 compared to countries around the world. That's not black people or brown people. That's American people. So when you're already number 25 and then you have a faction of that community who is failing at number 25, uh, you have a real problem. Uh, I raised five children and put them through school, and it makes a difference when your children have homework and you're running back and forth to the store every evening getting supplies and materials for them to turn in special projects. You need money to to do that. In a home where you can't buy oatmeal, it becomes very difficult to run out and do a science project mm. and spur the moment from a working mother who's got four kids and is living there trying to take care of the house alone or left the kids in the house because she's working an evening shift. It's all she can do to get them out of the house in the morning. So it's a very complicated issue. Uh, and I think the fact that there are there is pain, historical pain, that it should not deter us from having the kinds of conversations to get us all, people of all colors, to gain this problem so that we can have a fair and equitable opportunity for all people. Talking about opportunities and family, one of the issues in, in the research was positive 
parenting and family values. Um, when I looked at the research, majority think that having a traditional nuclear family with both mother and father is very important. And the irony I found in all of this was that I think while a lot of people accept or tolerate same-sex marriage, they still think that the value and importance of a traditional marriage when it comes to raising a family is vital, that there should be a mother and a father. Well, in, a, in an ideal situation, you know, I would love to see mothers and fathers uh, parenting these kids. But again, that's a, that makes a nice picture for a Christmas card. Mm-hmm. But the people that we're talking about right now don't have those opportunities to have stabilized fathers in the home for the reasons that we've talked about earlier. Uh, I don't think a same-sex marriage has a whole lot to do with it one way or the other. What we're dealing with in our community is the absence of any real stable presence in the home or the stable presence is so busy trying to provide mm. that there's nobody there to protect. So you're dealing with small children in dangerous situations with no babysitters often and all types of uh, perversity going on. Uh, the children are unguarded. You can't go to school hungry and compete. You can't go to school molested and raped and be stable. You can't go to school and come home in fear and gunfire going off at night and being in the best of situations. So that's, the, all of those things are problems, and, and directly or indirectly, since we have a huge amount of people that are disproportionately incarcerated, uh, we, that, that really exacerbates the problem because if dad comes home, and I, I might add this, uh, we have a Texas Offenders Reentry Initiative where we take former inmates and take them through a year of training to help them to uh, assimilate back into society and reduce the rate of recidivism. So I, I have hands-on experience. I'm not just being idealistic. I'm not just. Well, I wanted to ask you. I, I you know, I wanted to ask you because you're very passionate about this whole incarceration thing. Uh, this whole well, criminal, it's, why, it's where, where does it come from, this whole criminal injustice? It's interconnected. I think it has as much to do with money as it has to do with color and our perception of people in a trial. Mm. When, when, when you see a young man in a situation that you can relate to, you respond differently than somebody who becomes it, it, it epitomizes uh, fear or uh, evil to you. Uh, it has a lot to do with who's on the bench. It has a lot to do with who's in the jury booth. Uh, you take, for instance, the Trayvon Martin case. There were certain people that were witnesses that the moment that I saw them as an African-American, there are certain things that I knew that the average non-black person would not read into the moment because they're not as familiar with the culture. Hmm. And most of us uh, acquiesced back into our silos in our bedroom communities with the ideologies of comfort without ever having to engage with other cultures. And uh, we were actually further along when we were in the industrial age and we were working together and the good old boys had to go to work with the boys in the hood. But today, uh, we're not seeing everything is techy and everybody's living in silos. And so it is easier to come up with biases and ideologies that are not reflection of a hands-on experience that says, this is a human being, this is a person, this is a school break, and the kids are acting up like all kids do. So you have these college. inmates who are released, and then you, you give them a training program. Yes, 
Is that right? We, we go, yes, we go through a complete training program, uh, sometimes helping them to get GED. Some of them have not even seen a cell phone since they've been incarcerated. We help them to assimilate back into a family that they are now unfamiliar with because the little baby, when they left, is now a grown man. The family has existed without dad for so long that dad comes out 20 years later. Who cares? There's often nobody there to pick him up. We've got homeless people in the street uh, as a result of it. We've got all kinds of problems. And is this part of the Potter's House? Yes, yes, it is a derivative of the Potter's House. It's called Texas Offenders Reentry Initiative. It has a separate 501c3, but it is a community development resource that I founded to help rehabilitate it. And if I sound passionate, it's because you do become passionate when you really meet the people and hear the stories, and they're not a paragraph in the morning news. How well does this work? Uh, it, it, it has worked very, very well. You know, it has worked very, very well. It's a very stringent program. It's difficult to go through. Uh, but we've gotten recognition on all levels uh, for the effectiveness of the program. And many churches are trying to duplicate it around the country, to both black and white, to uh, try to make a difference in the community. And churches are at their best when black, white, and brown come together to work on community problems rather than relegating it over to a particular people group and say if it's a Latino, the only people who can feed them are Latinos. It's not mm. true. If you care about the community, if you care about building a house that you don't have to build walls around, if you care about not being incarcerated by your indifference, uh, then you have to care about your community lest you end up living behind walls yourself as a result of your indifference to what's going on in the neighborhoods uh, across town from you. What I did find odd was in, in the survey when the respondents were asked in what order their support systems were, over 50% said they placed family first, 13% said they placed friends second, and only 5% placed the church the third. Why, why is the church so low? What, was that, what, what, what message does that give you? I think you're dealing with a different uh, age group, uh, and millennials do not have the affinity to the church that baby boomers did. Mm. Uh, baby boomers had an affinity to the church because the church was engaged in social justice. The church spoke out whenever there was crime or violence. The church spoke out about a lot of things. Mm. The younger generation doesn't see the use of the church. They don't see the effectiveness of the church, and they were not always raised in church as my generation was, so they really don't get it. They don't see where uh, it's relevant and uh, that we've got a lot of work to do to convince a generation. And might I say that's across the board. That's not just black millennials. It's white millennials as well are moving away from organized religion. Uh, in part, too, it is because they ingest information through the Internet. For example, our church, which runs maybe 7,000 people on Sunday morning and in our main location, about 2,000 in each of our uh, campus locations, uh, our church on Sunday morning, even with those numbers, and those are very strong numbers, say 11,000 people we see in totality to 12,000 people on a Sunday morning, pales in comparison to almost 35, sometimes as high as 35,000 people streaming online. 
So now people are receiving their information without going into the building. They're getting it through books. They're getting it through other ways. So when you start talking about church, uh, a building, uh, the younger generation see the service on YouTube. They don't necessarily feel the need to come out on Sunday morning and have to put on clothes and drive through traffic and park across the street mm. when they can sit up in their pajamas and drink a cup of coffee and watch it while they play on their their cell phone. <laughs> in terms of economic opportunity, when I saw the research again, it said that the African-Americans believe that their nation's economy is on the right track, and a, and a lot of them wanted to start their own business. Um and I was thinking, I mean, from another perspective, is that because they feel maybe they lack a good education and a proper skill set, uh, but now they just want to monetize their own passion and destiny, so they go about doing their own thing? I think that might be true in some cases. In other cases, it may be that they feel like they can control the atmosphere if they start their own business and don't want to be in situations where they feel like that they're not treated as fairly on the job as they feel like they ought to feel. But the real truth of the matter, a further stat will validate that though we are the fastest minority to go into business and we go into business more readily than any other people group, we also go out of business more readily, largely because we don't have access to the kinds of capital that makes it possible for us to be able to do effective business. And that becomes a huge problem. Anybody who's, who does business understands that if you don't have the proper capital, you can have the proper talent. But if you don't have the proper capital, it's hard to keep your business going. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I was actually quite surprised when um, it said that the African-Americans believe the nation's economy is on the right track because banks are not lenders. Sure. Yeah, well, because they're suffering worse than any other people group. Quite frankly, I was surprised by that, too. But I think that we have a survival instinct, instinct that is built into the, the history that we've gone through in this country, mm. that we know how to take less and make it work for us more readily than other people groups who have not suffered uh, the tragedies that, that we have ancestrally. And uh, I, the optimism is good. But being a preacher, there's a scripture that comes to mind, hope deferred makes the heart sick. So when, when hope is deferred long enough, still there's a sickness that comes because I keep thinking, this is going to be my year. Then next year, that's going to be my year. Here's optimism. Next year, that's going to be my year. Here's heart sick. Mm. Maybe I need to take it into my own hands. Maybe I should sell drugs. Maybe I should go into prostitution. Maybe I should break into a store because this is not working. The American dream is being dreamed by our people, but the reality is that we're living in a nightmare. It's not me. It's not my kids. It's not Oprah Winfrey. It's not Tyler Perry. It's not just a matter of color. It's a matter of opportunities in underserved communities. So you said in something interesting that they're the fastest growing set of people that get into business, but they also get out of business. Yeah, they don't. You don't have access to capital, or you can't afford to market, or you can't afford to have. Uh, resources and products available in your business that's not responding to you to your uh that doesn't turn into liquid assets all of that affects uh your ability your sustainability you know so those those things are are really a problem and it, it really causes uh 
a, a, a really painful experience. There's really about five major reasons why you, you run into that. One is not understanding what business they're in. The fact that you have a talent to do business, say, for instance, open up a chicken shack, but you can't necessarily uh, do uh, a business plan. You have talent, but without infrastructure, you have a problem. The second reason is running out of cash and capital uh, in the middle of the stream, and it takes the, you don't have the money. You have the talent, but you don't have the money. The third one is poor a poor management team. And one of the things that I've been suggesting in my community is for the business community, not the political figures, to help incubate businesses, to grandfather businesses. Mm. Uh, it would be cheaper to do that than it would be what we're spending in incarceration and tax dollars. The fourth reason is failure to solve a problem. Uh, while dealing with the problem, leaving the problem unsolved. That's another reason that we go out of business more readily. The fifth reason is that we grow too quickly. Sometimes when you are successful, you don't know how to respond to that success appropriately, and you find yourself in that situation. My father was an entrepreneur, started a business with a mop in a bucket, ended up with 52 employees in the 60s. So I've seen black business flourish, and I've seen black business fail. And often the fault line lies between not having not having the resources to build the business and not having anybody to mentor you uh, in that business. And that's something that we could do together as a community, even whether we do it from a church or whether we do it from schools or whether we do it through uh, various training elements. The, the good news is we can fix these problems. We can fix these problems. And I don't think that they're totally going to be fixed by politicians who yield to the trends of society, and the trends of society are controlled by the images on the media. And and it's not going to be fixed by politicians because ex-cons can't vote. But by the business community working in tandem with the politicians and also working in tandem with the churches because we understand our communities, if we would work together on these problems, we could turn America around. And I really do believe we can do it. Americans, black, white, and brown, tackling whatever problem, just like we go to war in all colors, just like we died on 9-11 in all colors, we have to build this country irregardless to colors. If we have a problem, we all have a problem. If we have a terrorist, we all have a terrorist. If we have a hurricane, we all get wet. So we have got to stop dealing with isolated problems and relegating them according to culture and color and have to adopt it as an American problem and defeat it. We must do that. Well, you're part of the Chamber of Commerce in Dallas. What, what prevents the business community from doing exactly what you're prescribing? Well, I think the business community is starting to uh, connect and they're starting to get the message. But as you well know, in most cities, you have a chamber of commerce, of which I'm a part, Mm -hmm. and then you have a black chamber of commerce, and then you have a Hispanic chamber of commerce, and then you have an Asian chamber of commerce. Our chamber of commerce are broken down by colors, much like our churches are. And and until we adapt these problems universally, mm. we're not going to be able to see the change that we need to change. And frankly, Vip, Americans have been so busy being politically correct that we can't have a real conversation because anytime you say anything about anything regards in regards to race, it's like you're whining uh, if you are that color. And uh, if that's what's holding that us color, back. Yeah, we're not talking. It's like a bad marriage. Everybody's polite, but nobody's dealing with the problem 
until one day it explodes. And the, that's why I appreciate interviews like this, because it provides an opportunity to, from somebody who's not angry, from somebody who's not going to profit from anything being done here. I'm not a, a shakedown person. I'm not trying to stick one culture up for the other. What I am is is an, of using my voice and my platform to speak on the behalf of people that would not get an interview with it. But I can get an interview, so I give a voice to the voiceless. I'm not a marcher. I've never been on a march. You know, I've never burned down anything, and I've never shot anybody. <laughs> but what I can do is use my tongue to to create conversations that would make our country greater for all people, and I think we can do that if we can just talk and work together and make the issue the problem and not the individual. Well, you're bringing a lot of issues to light. And, and that's almost, you know, it, it's very unusual to have someone from the pulpit almost talk about issues that are almost political. Well, well you're not, I'm not saying it, you're entering it, politics, but, you know, these are the things that normal oh, no. statesmen do talk about. Well, you know, the thing, and that's, that statement is reflective of culture in our community. It's, it's not unusual for the pastor uh, to be down at the courthouse fighting for the rights of his community. It's not unusual in our community to take up the plight or be, my people would want me to look over a, a real estate deal before they signed it. They would? Uh, my white, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to sign it until Bishop sees it. <laughs> no, know, is that because my, they want you to bless it or do they actually want you to look at the technicalities of it? No, they want me to look at the technicality of it, yeah. Whereas my friend, uh, who is white, Jack Graham, who, who pastors up the street from me and we go to lunch and hang out all the time, his members would never seek him out for something like that. Uh, they would go to a lawyer. But if you go to a lawyer, you got a bill. <laughs> so our people are in an endeavor to get up on the feet or, or mm. on their feet or trying to find anybody that can can speak for them when they're But is that because you're isolated in your own perspective? You're very unique because you bring a certain uniqueness to your approach. Like if you're not going to the other pastor because maybe he doesn't do or talk business. But no, no, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, I think almost at random you can preach, you can pick any African-American pastor that pastors a, a large percentage of African-American people, and he's been down to the courthouse when somebody's door has been arrested or he's been the voice that speaks up. And if you turn on your television set, whenever there's a crisis in our community, it's generally the clergy at the mic mm -hmm. one way or the other. You would not see a, an Aurora situation, for example, that happened in Colorado you did not see white pastors on CNN because that is not the expectation of their community. In Baltimore, you saw pastors everywhere speaking about it. It's, it's just understanding our culture and mm -hmm. our community. It's different. It's just different. Well, talking about understanding our community, what did you need to understand from the research you did on health care? Why were you concerned about health care? I got into health care because I have to be concerned about health care. I've got people with cancer and people with diabetes and people that are in trouble of all types and descriptions. And, and I have to be concerned about is it working, is it not working, is the plan in place now working? Is Obamacare uh, working? I can't. I'm not qualified to evaluate that. I think in some ways it is working. In some ways, it, is, it definitely is not working. I, my hope is it's the first step to an evolution of concepts that continues to grow a plan that eventually will be totally effective. This is the first step.
I think the, the country is ready to have a conversation about it, but it's probably going to be several years before we come up with a plan that matches other countries around the world who do provide uh, health care uh, up under the auspices of their governments and have been able to do it more effectively than we have. There's still a learning curve. You know what I think? I mean, uh, just looking at this whole health care business, should we not be addressing preventative health care as opposed to prescriptive health care? I think now this is just totally opinion and conjecture because I'm in no ways an expert on, in this regard. No, neither am I. I think, but I just think, you know, there's so much that's not talked about in terms of preventative. We always do it after them. It's real important, but let's let's talk about the elephant in the middle of the room. <laughs> Healthcare has become a huge business. Yes. The markup on our drugs is higher than almost any place else in the world you want to go. You've got people slipping into Mexico to get their prescriptions filled, right. uh, getting things over the Internet and in the mail. And what we really need to do is legislate how much profit you can make off of me being sick. Mm-hmm. Regardless to what color I am, uh, I cannot afford to pay $400 to have a prescription filled. And imagine if I only made $600 that month working at Wendy's. And, and you know what? Uh, Everything is not a pill. Right. The pill is not right. the each and every cure. I mean, you know, you got people becoming hypochondriacs. Absolutely. And 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 you also have people I've run into a lot of people who are dying because they cannot afford their medication. They can't afford it. Hmm. They can't afford it. If you don't have health care and you you have a, a low income job uh at minimum wage, you can't afford to get sick. So how can you get old and, and, and never be sick and guarantee that you'll never be sick? So I have people who are having strokes for something that could have been prevented because they couldn't afford hypertension medicine or they haven't had a shot of insulin in a year. And I see it almost every week. So those sorts of things and those kinds of stories create a problem and a frustration uh, in our community, when you're watching TV and you're seeing other people live lives and go on vacations and take trips and they're showing you how to build a home and how to buy a home and how to decorate a home, and you're sitting up there uh, eating uh, rice and beans for the 12th time and you can't get your medication and your mother's going into a, a coma, you get angry and you get frustrated. So those of us who have been blessed in any way, we have to take up the plight of the underserved, regardless of what color they are and whether we can relate to them or not, because otherwise our silence is literally killing people. But Bishop, where do you take this finding? I mean, you know, your followers will listen to you, but in order to create an element of change, who do you take it forward to? You know... One of the projects that I was working on, and I I certainly can't do this by myself, that's why I welcome this interview, because I want people to come up with their own ideas and their own plans and start talking to people who are down in the trenches, because uh, it's not a a single-pronged cure, it's a multi-pronged cure. But we started doing something with the Reconciled Church, and we started bringing white and brown and black pastors together Mm. who normally wouldn't come together just to explain what you're not hearing and seeing on television. And Bishop Harry 
Jerry Jackson and James Robinson, who is a white clergyman, came together with black clergymen, and we sat down together with leaders of all stripes, Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals. We were careful to make some room. And we got in the room and just started laying out the problems because if we work together, we can get something done about it. And it was an eye-opening experience. And I'm happy to report that that pastors of all stripes, when they finally understood it, they really got it and they do care about it. So the challenge becomes, since the senator goes to your church and since you golf with the mayor, uh, carry this voice a little further than, than maybe someone else can carry it. And even during this interview, there are people listening who can take this up, even if you can only help three people. Uh, right after I did an interview, for example, on Fox News, a friend of mine who's president of a bank called me and said, I'll, I'll hire four people that you pick out of your church that you feel like have these qualifications because I was touched by what you said. So that's four lives you've changed. Yes. And, and see, that's why I think that uh, uh, the private sector has to hear this message and not the political figures because a lot of things that the politicians want to address they can't address because if it's not popular they won't get elected and <laughs> so you it's almost like you're spreading this among your peer group who are then taking it back to the grassroots level and then who in turn will then get the politicians to talk about it and make some changes at least that's the plan we'll see how it works right, right, right. but but the good news is uh, there was a receptive audience. Uh, when, when you look in uh, Charleston at the recent murder of nine innocent people who were having a Bible class, uh, when you looked at that funeral, it wasn't just black folks. It was black folks and white folks and brown folks. The more we can see images of people working together to solve crisis, and the less you get blowback from people who say, you know, you're uh, a race baiter if you point to a race problem. Mm. It's like saying Mother's, Mother's Day is gender-based. <laughs> if you're having a problem in a particular area and it fits the description, you have to call it what it is. When we own that problem and say, hey, let's work on this together to bring about a change, I, I just think that we can do it. Well, you are going to be bringing about a change because you've got this show that's coming out. <laughs> now, one of the subjects that you did research on was a demand for family-based entertainment. Are the two interlinked? You know... I mean, I are your, re your findings in your research, are they going to have some element of um, disclosure in your shows? Oh, we're going to take on issues, and mm. we're going to take on issues and individual problems from building relationships and solving conflicts in the house to uh, more global issues. One of the shows that we did were with the mothers of all the recent victims that have filled the headlines, uh, uh, Trayvon Martin's mother and, and uh, many others. Uh, we began to talk to them about what they were going through and what they felt. Uh, I think that we have not used TV for its highest and best use. I think that we can lift America by the images that we see, or we can destroy America by the images that we see. And I just want to be a light. You know, I'm, I'm new to it. I'm optimistic, I'm, uh, maybe innocently so or naively so. But I, I just no. Think I, I think I think you've hit the nerve on the head because, or the nail on the head rather, because you know the irony is there's a strong demand for reality shows. I get that, but we've right. stopped demanding substance. We don't consume right. for nourishment anymore. 
Uh, and, you know, also, I guess in today's world, consumers, we from the media's perspective, we know our consumers because they watch TV. We, all, right. we know they have trouble focusing on content over a significant period of time. You know, if you're right. not multitasking, you feel you're not being useful. Uh, exactly. And, you know, in, if you look at the old days when you and I were growing up, we used to watch programs like Happy Days, The Cosby Show, things like that. Now we have mindless programs like The Real Housewives of Nowhere, um, you know, Jersey Shore, where everything is just made to be more than it is. And when you end up looking back on the show, you didn't learn anything. Not only do you not learn anything, sometimes we don't put our best and brightest images on TV. And when children look at the screen, that's mm. what they aspire to be, whether it's football or rappers, whether it's doctors or lawyers. We don't put our best and brightest on screen. Right. And and, and we appeal to the the baser sort of, of, of living. Uh, it's the difference between... Uh, Watching Jerry, uh, watching Larry King, and uh, watching Jerry Springer, <laughs> you know, uh, I think we can do things through television that are positive, and that's why uh, I'm doing the TD Jokes show. We're starting out in limited markets uh, only in Atlanta and Dallas, Cleveland and Indianapolis, but uh, it should grow to full syndication in 2016. And uh, I just want to do my part. I am not at all thinking that that I can turn this around. I know I cannot. No, but there's a vacancy that you're fulfilling. Yeah, I'm trying to. And I want want everybody uh, listening at us uh, to do something. Just something. Just just something. You know what? That would be a great show or or some sort of a request on your part to the people in Megafist that think of what you can do. You know, I did something when I was doing Instincts where Mm. we started giving out small amounts of capital to 10 or 20 people at random. Mm -hmm. And the assignment was to to do something to turn it into more than what we gave you. Mm. And and I was teaching on what what do you do with the gifts that you've been given, that God gives us gifts, but it's our... He'll fish the rest of his life. 
So it's much cheaper in the long run to teach him to fish than it is to hand him a fish. Very true, Bishop, and thank you very much for your words of wisdom. It's been a pleasure, always. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a wonderful and amazing Bishop T.D. Jakes. Thank you for listening. Megafest is almost here, so be there. His book, Destiny, is out, so get that, and his show is coming soon, so get ready. A special shout-out of thanks to the wonderful Regina Lewis for making this show happen, and, of course, my dream team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you and your loved ones a productive and a very happy week ahead. <laughs>